Welcome and welcome back to Not Your Token Minority, an interview podcast that explores and celebrates the stories of the global majority. I am back in this episode with Steph, who you heard in the previous episode, and we are here to have a conversation around some of the most common questions, responses, and comments we often hear when reading or talking about racism. The idea for this came after Steph mentioned a couple of questions she received while doing media interviews that spoke to a real lack of understanding around oppression and people's experiences living with racism. So I thought it would be a good idea to take a look at some of those points and break them down, plus give some insight into how you might be able to respond if you ever come across those comments yourself. This is by no means a perfect, exhaustive conversation. I think there is always more to be learnt and to be said. And especially for those of you who are a bit further along in your journey than we might be, this might feel a little bit like Racism 101. But I hope it does encourage constructive discussion in some way and helps you or someone around you to dismantle harmful ways of thinking. We are back again with Steph uh, for oh. another episode, <laughs> um, and this time we are actually going to look at some of the most common questions or um, responses that we hear from people in relation to Asian or racism against Asians. And mm-hmm. I got this idea for this episode because when we were catching up before this recording, you were saying how you were asked some questions by a radio host or an interview of some sort exactly through your media interviews by the public or through interviews yeah yeah and I think that these questions are quite common and they're also really important to address but also for any listeners out there who are often asked these questions it might help you to be able to formulate a response of your own Mm. or know how to reply to people who bring these points up yeah so I guess we'll start with the first one which is something that you were personally asked about why it's not okay to mock an Asian accent but it's mm-hmm. okay to for example mock a, an Irish an accent. Irish yeah. yeah so this one obviously we can reply to people we say hey that's a great question we definitely want to approach it with this sense of kindness and compassion just in case people get scared because then people don't ask these questions if we attack it quite hard. So we say that's a great question. Firstly, it's dependent on the existing power structures. And what I mean by that is how the world sees different racial groups is very strongly established that white people are considered at the top and superior and people of color are considered inferior and below them. Obviously, we don't want to see people that way, and that's why we're here today. We're trying to avoid seeing that, but that just unfortunately is realistically what the power structure is currently right now. And that's why when you mock a group that's already below in this power structure, that has a complete different effect than mocking, let's say, white people who are at the top of the structure. Because when you're mocking people of color, you're mocking an already oppressed group. And that usually has really negative connotations in terms of the mockery. Whereas when you mock, let's say, an Italian accent, you're talking about pizza and spaghetti, you don't draw negative imagery about Italian people. Whereas for, let's say, Asian or Indian people, you may draw these really negative stereotypes that are actually really harmful. And that is completely different from a European stereotype. Totally. It is being able to think about these issues as being multi-layered, so and not thinking about them as in like everybody is equal because everybody isn't equal 
people don't have the same levels of power in our societies. Um, so I think you summed that up pretty well in terms of the implications and also the effect. Yes, absolutely. We can give an example for, let's say, the coronavirus one, because that's so immediate. That's obviously a very negative connotation. So let's say you're stereotyping a Chinese person as Kung Flu or mocking their accents and in a way that definitely talks about coronavirus. That's one, false and not helpful and constructive in any way. Two, really, really negative and obviously relates to all the hate crimes that are happening today. Whereas you think about Italian food what negative stereotype would you ever have about an Italian person? You just think, hey, that's delicious food. Yeah. You don't think anything really negative about that. So, and of course, they're a non-oppressed group, and that plays into it as well. So, 100%, like you said, it's not just a black and white question. You have to think about the implications of such. Definitely. Okay, so the second one is... You know, a lot of comedians, for example, they um, use a lot of racial stereotypes to form the basis of their jokes. Mm. And I think this is probably comes from maybe older generations yeah. uh, where they sort of complain about how they can't make jokes anymore, how everything is so PC. <laughs> right. Yeah. So what do you say to people who still have that mindset? I'm just going to be completely honest here. I think if you have to racially attack an entire demographic, you're not that funny because you'd have to be so insecure to actually want to discriminate against someone's race or other means of difference, such as disability. You'd have to actually be really insecure, honestly. And I want to empathize with that. So at the same time, while I acknowledge that it's probably coming from a place of insecurity and one should reflect on themselves for that if they ever feel themselves wanting to become discriminatory of another group they should definitely reflect on that and say why do i need to bring out my whiteness or my superiority in order to be funny or to make a joke so one definitely reflecting on that and two you a hundred percent can be funny without attacking a group and also realizing that when you do even if you know you're not a comedian and you're just i don't know at a barbecue and you make some off-color joke about a minority group like you have to think about where that is coming from and what trauma you're going to be inflicting on the people around you as well 100 percent. yes because i completely agree with that you know like something might just be a joke to you but it's like a lived experience for somebody else and it can be quite painful 100 percent. yeah i think that comedians or just people in general before we make jokes we need to acknowledge and confront what if someone else did this to me? Because everyone I'm sure can come up with some unique difference that they have. And let's say someone is gay and white because this was the interview host I had who said, well, this is becoming too PC now, like not making racist jokes. I said, well, how would you feel if everyone joked about you being homosexual in a really negative way? I said, do you think that Orlando shooting of the gay club like relates to any of this type of joking do you think that's funny and it's hard hitting but that's just the truth all the hate crimes regarding chinese people and east asians right now and south asians too regarding coronavirus it comes from that everyday supposedly mild joking turns out it's not mild it's actually really intense and hits at the trauma of every single one of us and you have to link those together because 
those hate crimes, they don't come from nowhere. They no. came from the everyday normalization of that type of discourse. It's exactly that. It's the acceptance of those daily microaggressions, really, exactly. um, that build into something bigger like the shooting and you know that brings up another point as well like racism isn't always the big event like it's not always the shooting or the uh, like physical abuse it's a spectrum exactly and it ranges from like the very small minor details all the way up to the murdering exactly whether it's genocide or just social exclusion walking in a store and then being ignored and then everyone being focused on is white but you're a person of color and people aren't attending to you that 100 is racism yeah I remember listening to the Stop Asian Hate March in Sydney and there was an Asian Australian comedian who spoke. He said he uses his comedy in terms of his own racism. He talks about his own racial experiences, but he uses that comedy to try lighten up his trauma essentially and as a way to talk about it and Mm. shed light on it and he says but it sucks though that i have to go through awful racist experiences in the first place that i even have to get to a place where i make comedy my job and humor to try cope with my racial trauma and i said that's such a good point because i know a lot of people maybe will listen to speakers of color talk about their own racism and their experiences and be like okay so if he's laughing at it i can laugh at it too yeah and i know that totally makes sense for people to think that way as they're looking at it but actually we have to wonder where are they coming from when they're doing that maybe they're just coping and we can laugh in it in the room maybe with them but actually when we go out in public we shouldn't laugh if we hear some let's say islamophobic joke or anything like that because it's just not funny at all and that brings up another point that um we've also talked about about how growing up sometimes we would initiate those racist jokes ourselves because it's so painful hearing it from somebody else and you know it's it's also bringing in the factor of you know you just want to fit in and so you just want to be seen as like chill and like relaxed and like haha ha, i'm able to laugh at myself oh my gosh 100 percent. that's so extraordinarily relatable i'm sure every person of color listening to this can definitely relate to this because like you said it's wanting to come across as chill and not angry about it and like you said it's so painful that if you start the joke yourself first then no one else will yeah and they'll just laugh along with it and it's such a tricky area to tread because obviously when we laugh and make those jokes ourselves we show to other people unintentionally oh i can make those jokes too and she finds it funny so it must be totally okay and again it's not our fault it's just what we did as a way to cope in the society but i really hope that we can educate our future children now to not even feel like they have to do that yeah yeah hopefully (laughs) yeah absolutely (laughs) yeah cool so the next one is one that I don't know if I have personally heard people say it, but I definitely see it a lot online. Mm, yeah. And it's people retaliating with, but I'm not racist. Uh, and I think this point comes up a lot when people of color talk to white people about addressing white supremacy and racism. And it brings up a really defensive reaction in people. And they're like, well, I'm not racist. So why do I feel like I'm being attacked? Like, why are you picking on me kind of thing? Yeah. So I'd really love to unpack that because I think it's a really major barrier for people wanting to communicate, say if they have like a white partner and they're wanting to communicate to them about how to address race issues. What are your thoughts on it? I think that's a great question. And I think 
the word racism, like you said, really invokes this strong defensive reaction and people see racism or being a racist as the most extreme word to describe racism. But the thing is, it's not just extremities. Being racist is all the small things as well. And I know that people hate identifying with it, but that lack of confrontation of identifying with it actually makes you more racist. It's important that every single one of us acknowledge whenever we have racist thoughts, even as a person of color, if we have a racist thought, let's say to ourselves, we have to acknowledge that. Because for example, like I was talking about in our previous podcast, my journey with internalized racism. And I now, let's say if I have any discriminatory thought, whether it's judgment towards just anything, right? Like I'm not going to pretend here I'm perfect and I don't have judgmental thoughts. I generally work really hard to be empathetic and compassionate and non-judgmental. But, you know, if you have a really terrible day and there's one day that you're like, man, I just really don't like how this person's wearing a bright green jacket. Or just, I'm just making up an example. Yeah. That's when you can actually catch yourself thinking that way and say, hey, why did I think that way? Because I don't find there's any problem with wearing green jackets there must be something up with me and I should really confront that. And so it's questioning, did I have a bad day today? Did I do X, Y, Z? How can I change this way of thinking? And that's important for anyone in terms of treating these conversations, let's say between a person of color and a white person. So I think, you know, both of us, we have white partners. So we've obviously had those conversations before. And for my partner, what was really important was acknowledging that he grew up in a racist environment and said, I have definitely thought racist things before. And I said, yeah, me too. By my upbringing, I've definitely thought racist things, especially towards myself. And acknowledging that and saying, while we have had racist thoughts, we can now actively be anti-racist. And that's where movement really ignites. Yeah. And I really love that you bring that up because it's not enough just to be not racist. Mm -hmm. You have to actively work to help dismantle those systems that you benefit from. Mm -hmm. And that's the thing, like people with this reaction, they're kind of overlooking or not being able to see the fact that they, even though they may not have created the structures and systems that are racist now, they benefit from them purely because they're white, which means that they benefit in ways that oppress other groups of people. Exactly. Yes. And so being not racist is Is not, not enough. Is not enough. Like you need to do the work and, you know, show your support and amplify or help amplify the voices of others to help break down those structures. Exactly. And, you know, it goes back to what we were saying before about racism. It's not binary. Like you're not racist or not racist. It's a spectrum and racism comes in all forms. Like it's, it's internalized, which we've both dealt with. It's, um, it's interpersonal, it's institutional. Mm -hmm. So when you start to think about it like that, you really start to see that racism is actually like everywhere. Yeah, exactly. And it's really hard, but also it's just realistic. And when you confront that, that's when you can truly change. Yeah, definitely. Because you can simultaneously in one week have a racist thought and then choose to be Mm anti-racist because that's completely different from what you said is this complacency. If you say, I'm not a racist, and then you continue with this ignorance of true racism in the world today, that actually is far worse because ignorance is a form of racism. I guess in terms of taking steps to work that out, um, I guess the first step is acknowledging your position in the world, right? Uh-huh. And then 
I guess being less concerned with being called racist and more concerned with actually, you know, dismantling racism. A hundred percent. Yeah. More concerned for the person that you're talking to and saying, you know what? I don't know your experiences and I'm very open. I'd love to hear about it. Tell me how you feel. Mm. Actually having that openness and willingness to listen is so vital. And so that's on an individual level, someone having a conversation, if you're white, having a conversation with a person of color and say, would you be open to sharing your experiences with me? I'd love to listen and then devising solutions from there. And then obviously the individual hopefully becomes enlightened and then they can take it to their workplace, take it to their educational institution and say, how about we have shared lunches at school? How come let's have a cultural diversity training program? Because unfortunately, a lot of workplaces still don't have such and that's how you get this normalized racism. So really coming together and suggesting to their bosses, having a cultural diversity training and how important it is. Even it's sad that sometimes it's not enough for people to be willing to change. If you say, don't do it because it's just not a good thing. Sometimes people need to hear a clutch of why they should do something, which mm-hmm. is again, sad, but a way that we can encourage people is say, it's not just to make yourself a better human being and more inclusive and appreciative of other people. Also, just as a business, how do you want to look to other people if you look really socially exclusive? Mm. Do you think you're going to attract a good client base? Do you think X, Y, Z? And that shouldn't be the primary cause of the conversation. But if some people are still just not getting it and they need something else to be pulled into the conversation, then that's worth having. Because then that can also push the person of concern to think, you know what? I do want to be a better person, not just for my business, but for me. And it's not a jail-free card in the sense that let's say one person has a bad day and then they do something that's hateful or they think a thought that's not great. It's not a jail-free card saying, oh, you know what? It's fine. I had a bad day. I don't usually think like this. That's not the way we should approach it. It's more so, okay, so I'm more likely to think this way when I'm in a bad mood. Where did this come from? Was my environment really socially exclusive and racist growing up? If so, then let's unpack that. Yeah, I think people really need to get comfortable with being uncomfortable sometimes because some of these questions you ask yourself and they do make you uncomfortable. Exactly. A hundred percent. It's necessary to get uncomfortable. And that's because of now how the word racist is used that we think of as just extremists and supremacists. But that's not true. We have to actually just use the word and say, you know what? That was racist. I had a racist environment growing up, obviously, with the very white schools I went to. And we made fun of all sorts of minority groups, including my own. And obviously I look back at that now and say, wow, I had really, really racist thoughts in a child as a child. And that was really racist how I acted then. But then for me having to unpack that and be like, how come that happened? One, so coping with my emotions two, feeling like my racial group was inferior. So having to target other ones as long as, as long as like coping with everyone else as well. Because if you see white people mock a certain group, then you're like, I want to join in. And Three, I was young. Four, like, you know, so many different environmental influences. And obviously not having a father to tell me, you are Singaporean Chinese and proud. You know, like not having that strong family dynamic there obviously played a huge role for me as well. So everyone has their own reasons. And I know for a white person, it might be harder because they'll have no, let's say, excuse to be like, oh, I wasn't racially oppressed. Does that make me just a horrible person? Mm. It's more so, no, it's okay. Just say I grew up with a racist environment. My parents sometimes said racist things. Are my parents bad people? Maybe not. They literally maybe just had the exact same cycle perpetuated through generations. Yeah, definitely. And um, I do like what you alluded to in that 
none of us are born knowing all of this you know exactly it's, it's a work in progress and it's a journey and yes. i'm still learning yes and me too we all yeah are. yeah so and that's okay and you will make mistakes along the way and it's fine as long as you acknowledge them and you learn from them a hundred percent so yeah try to like you know don't approach it with fear i guess yes. as well which um, I know it's easy to have. Exactly. Definitely if we're able to find, let's say if you're a white person and then you have a couple of friends of color saying, I know this is a sensitive area to tread, but if you're willing to be on this journey with me as I learn more about your experiences and other people's experiences, I hope you're okay with that. Yeah, yeah. definitely. Cool. So I guess the next one that we'll look at is this response people give when they say, I don't see race. Mm. So like everyone's the same to me. Like I treat everyone equally, which actually ends up erasing all of our experiences work. basically and work. Exactly. But, yeah. Like the fundamental thing is that when you say that you don't see race or color, it's mm-hmm. basically denying that people's experiences happened. Exactly. So let's unpack that. First of all, the intention is really well intended. It's, when we question why someone says that it's them intending to say they don't see us any less. And so we can look at that, say, okay, they're well-intended, but impact wise, obviously, like you said, it's painful for I and, and they have no idea. So we can say, Hey, like I get where you're coming from as you say that, but a reason why that actually does draw some offense to me is because it belittles my experiences. And I think instead of saying that we don't see color or don't see race, it's more so we do see it because that's just realistic and that's the truth. And we want to celebrate it because that's what we have to do to acknowledge our differences and want to encourage people celebrating it essentially. Yeah, definitely. I think this one's a pretty straightforward one. Yeah, Um, exactly. Like if we can acknowledge someone's intention as they say that, so they feel less defensive, I think that's a really positive way to approach it. I think it's really great that you approach everything with compassion as well, because I think that is really important because a lot of these conversations, I guess, lack that sometimes. And it's really important to understand all sides in order to be able to like learn and grow together as well. Yeah, no, thanks so much. I appreciate that. I completely agree. It's sometimes off-putting to people when they feel like the response is going to be quite inflammatory and obviously understandable if it is because people have a lot of pain behind their words. But if we're able to do our best to understand what the person's intentions could be, or at least ask them that question if we're not sure. Yeah, for sure. Okay, so you've actually been asked this next one fairly recently or sort of been in an environment where you've had someone say this to you, but Mm -hmm. why do we have to make everything about race? Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it's a hard one being told that. So the context in which I hear this or like I was told by this recently was in an interview where there was another guest beside me and – we were asked the question, what do we think of New Zealand's new healthcare reform where we have a Māori group where there is a Māori leader acting for Māori people and deciding for their healthcare solutions, which makes complete sense to me because you can't have someone who doesn't understand the Māori experience deciding what's best for Māori people. So I was saying how it made complete sense. The host was saying that also. And for this other guest, she said, why do we have to make everything about race? And so as we unpacked that, I said, well, obviously, I just said essentially what I just told you about how we need Māori people making decisions for Māori people. And 
she said, yeah, but I just don't know why people talk about it so much. Like we're just whatever color people don't get treated worse because of their color. And so I, as soon as I heard that, I thought, okay, this is extreme an extreme level of ignorance here. And that's why we have to unpack these conversations. We have to figure out where's this person coming from as they say that. And it's really extremely difficult to have these conversations, honestly, because it depends on this person's energy and where they're coming from and how willing they are to change and learn. But hearing that definitely is difficult. And have you ever had a question like that? Not directed at me, but I have definitely seen it elsewhere. Like, yeah, it's definitely something that people say a lot. And I guess I'm not really sure where it comes from. Mm -hmm. It comes from one, a level of ignorance. And also it's different from each person because this person here, they said they had an Asian husband who was half Asian and she said she gets it and that people don't treat them differently. And I think one, the fundamental issue was of that. She was speaking on behalf of a person of color and acting like she knew the situation. And I think that's obviously a deep level of ignorance and that probably came from how she was brought up and honestly, just straight racism as well. Yeah. So that was the situation. I think a way of responding to when, people say why is everything about race is saying honestly because it's just realistically what's happening if you were a person of color and you were oppressed almost every single day or you just felt like you couldn't belong it's your entire life and you can't not talk about what's already happening i think when people say why make it about race they think you're trying to make something an issue when it's not an issue but that's the misconception. It's saying this is already an issue. We just need to talk about it yeah. because the more you put it under the rug, the more that we suffer. And by saying, why do you have to make it about race? Again, you're erasing the experiences of people who have lived through that trauma. A hundred percent. And saying that it's invalid. Exactly. And then another context I've heard that though, is I was telling my mom recently how my university, they, upon the Black Lives Matter movement and the Stop Asian Hate movement, they've been releasing a lot more alumni people of color and showing what they've been up to. And I'm like, oh, this is great. They're really portraying diversity. And then I, and then my mom said, you know what? Why is it about race though? She said, why can't people just post that, just acknowledging the person's achievements and accomplishments without having to bring in, oh, but they were a really successful Asian or black person. Mm. She says, why can't they just say they were an accessible architect? Doesn't matter what race they are. Mm. She said they should be already highlighting people of color anyway. So that was another context in which it's important to hear. So if a person of color, for example, like my mom saying that, it's questioning where are they coming from and understanding, ah, that's why she said it. She said, because if someone does well, it's not saying a pat on the head, great work, Asian person. You know, it's saying, wow, you're a great X, Y, Z. And I think we can even relate this to feminism. I know Mm. some people really don't like the term girl boss Mm. or femme power because they're saying, what if I was literally just a CEO? Why does everyone have to bring up the fact that I'm a girl boss? Because these terms are very... Almost belittling and yes. unintentionally misogynistic because sometimes it is made to sound all cutesy. Whereas a man CEO role, you'll never be like, oh, you're a man boss, you know? Yeah. So some people have definitely made that call to action. And I think that's what my mum was getting at, where she's like, what if people just saw that they were a fantastic person? And 
didn't highlight them for the sake of race because she says sometimes that can dilute their work and people might see that oh you're just talking about it for the sake of diversity and not for the sake of appreciation yeah definitely. so it's definitely a hard one to balance because again mm-hmm. people have fantastic intention when they highlight role models who are people of color but when when my mum says let's not always make it about race it just totally depends on how you do it mm-hmm. cool so the next one um, so I kind of see this quite a bit on my social media because I follow a lot of Asian media. Mm. And so obviously with the rise in anti-Asian hate crimes and things happening, there've been a lot of these stories and in a lot of the comment sections, um, you get a lot of other people of color who are like, oh, but Asians are racist too. Oh, yeah. I've actually seen that myself. Yeah. So let's unpack that as well. So... First of all, I just want to put out there that, you know, it's not the oppression Olympics. Yes. Like, it's not a competition to compare, like, who suffered the most. Yeah, exactly. Um, Which is sometimes the sort of mentality that I think a lot of people get into or they get caught up with. Like, oh, but my pain is worse than yours. Exactly. Like, why should I care about your pain kind of thing? But. Again, that only works for white supremacy because it pits minorities against each other. A hundred percent. I completely agree with that and attest to that. I think that people lose sight of the biggest issue at hand, and that is trying to dismantle white supremacy. I personally think that when minority groups maybe say, or the Asian people in particular say, oh, but we're racist to other groups too. See, I personally don't notice that discourse between black people. I don't see any black person being like openly saying, oh, but I've been racist to this other group too. It's almost like the Black Lives Matter movement gets more validity. But then I think with some Asian people, they feel like the Black Lives Matter movement is more important to other people because people talk about Black Lives Matter more than Stop Asian Hate, which I find incredibly painful and infuriating Mm -hmm. and super frustrating. But I think that's exactly that selective advocacy of black lives or other minority lives over Asian people that make them feel like their advocacy isn't justified. Because I've had some people say, oh, but, but you know, we're, we're Asian, like it's, or, or Asian people don't get it rough. Like, mm. what are they complaining about? They're the model minority. And it's like, well, exactly what you said is why we have to do this. Because I've even had a journalist say that to me, that we're the model minority. And I've had to say, actually, this, she was a white journalist and I said, that's actually a harmful term. And she didn't know that. And so it just really goes to show that some people are really guided by these stereotypes. And even us, our Asian community, unfortunately, has been steered by those stereotypes that we believe we're not even in a worthy place of talking about black. I mean, sorry, about Asian, Asian matters. And I find it so crucially unfair because I think with Stop Asian Hate, in Auckland, unfortunately, I'm going to be really, really honest. I think sometimes people have been like, oh, but what about the brown and black lives? And then for Black Lives Matter, no one would ever walk up to a black person and say, what about Stop Asian Hate? What about mm-hmm. those coronavirus hate crimes? Mm-hmm. You know? And to me, I just think, how dare you? People who are willing to say to me that we don't have deserve our own place to advocate just shows how racist our society truly is. It 100%, like you said, it's not oppression Olympics. It's not saying we have it worse or better than black people because that type of commentary doesn't help in any way at 
all. No, not at all. We have different struggles and that has to yep. be acknowledged. And our lives aren't easier than one another. It's so complex and dependent on individuals. And we can't just make those assumptions. They're really damaging. We have to remember the final point at the end is like, number one, we all suffer from white supremacy. And that's something we have to unite about. I think this is a good opportunity to break down the model minority myth as well. So I have done an episode on this before, but didn't really go fully in depth into it. So let's talk about why the model minority myth is a fallacy, first of all, and what it actually does for our minority communities. Mm -hmm. So people perceive it to be a really positive stereotype because it's people think, oh, I would like to be perceived as smart and hardworking and X, Y, Z. But I'll start off with my personal experience. Growing up, people expected me to be good at math. And if I was intelligent or diligent at school, people would say, but you're just born naturally smart because you're Asian. Yeah. Number one, as a scientist, that is not true at all. (laughs) Just put it out there. I've done a lot of genetic studies and biological studies. That is not true that there are ethnic differences in intelligence. It's very environmentally driven. Two, I felt so suffocated by these stereotypes that made me not want to do math at all. And I actually started doing poorly in math because Mm -hmm. of how people perceived I should be. And people completely belittled my accomplishments and my diligence because of my race. And same with Asian people. So I remember if there were a lot of Asian people in the top math class or just achieving well academically, people would say, you're just born that way. Mm. But if a white person was academically successful, people would say, you're amazing. You're just a superstar and you're so smart. And I found those stereotypes to be so extraordinarily harmful because those stereotypes bleed into the workplace. People think, oh, well, if every Asian is smart, then what's so special about accepting one into this job or accepting one into the school, et cetera. And it was just so harmful because these smart stereotypes also came with personality flaws. People assumed we were submissive, quiet, just personality-wise not that funny. And it's horrific because people then don't give you a chance. It really drives that social exclusion and racism all over again. So the model minority does not only impact people who are directly impacted, but also, let's say, other Asian groups who are actually not wealthy, who are really poor. It's so unfair on them because people assume they're going to be fine. They don't need our support. They don't need our guidance. What if Asian people were actually suffering in math class and couldn't perform that well? People would assume they don't need help. They're Asian, right? And obviously, then they're not able to perform. Same with the wealth stereotype. That's probably got to be the most negative when people... Same with just like being someone who goes to Yale and other Ivy League institutions, people assume every single student must be wealthy and rich. And while it's true there are a lot of wealthy students, it doesn't mean every single one is. And that stereotype is so harmful because then people are limited in their job opportunities or people just assume you have it easier, you're privileged. And that's just not true because you have no idea where that person came from. For example, no one looking at me would know that I went through extreme childhood trauma with my dad passing away, etc. What it's like to have a single mother literally fortune income to help us. Mm. And people just don't know that. So when people assume things about my background or other people, it's just not helpful. So that's the exact same with the model minority myth because it doesn't apply to everyone. And even when it does, it's harmful. Yeah. And when we talk about the model minority myth as well, it's often only talked about in relation to East Asians. So Asians who look like us. Yes. It completely discounts Southeast Asians, South Asians. Like Asia is a huge continent. And even like using the term Asian is just, it's so generic. The model minority myth really works to hide 
a lot of the disadvantaged people in our community as well. 100%. So people, when they talk about this, they often bring up the Atlanta shooting because, Mm. you know, it it was women of colour, of Asian ethnicity, who were perceived to be sex workers uh, working in nail salons. And when you perpetuate the model minority myth, you're forgetting that there are all these other people, like these women who were murdered, who are not covered by that and 100%. it really hides you know all the poverty and exactly that so many people in our community live with 100 percent. because in america asian americans are actually the demographic with the greatest inequities in terms of wealth so you have the richest of riches and the poorest of poorest people mm-hmm. in one racial group yeah and people don't realize that and so like you said when you throw in the poor people in the mix with the moral minority myth you completely disadvantage them and you don't pay attention to them and their own experiences. And like you said, for other Asian groups like Southeast Asians, it's really unfortunate that the myth has really become this way. And I hope that people are able to see the detriments of it. And I guess to actively work against it, you need to, like we've talked about before, you really need to be conscious of your thoughts and what you say and, you know, whether they are helping to perpetuate this myth. And, you know, I'm going to be honest, like when I was growing up, I myself helped to perpetuate the model minority myth for myself and for others around me. So again, it's reinforcing the fact that nobody is perfect and we're all still learning exactly. on that journey as well. <laughs> so I guess I want to wrap up with a final question or discussion point. So yeah. um, recently when I was part of a panel talk at the University of Auckland, we were posed with the question of what makes a good ally? Mm, yeah. That's yeah. So what does allyship mean to you? It means standing in solidarity together, recognizing that others have struggles. You don't have to a hundred percent understand it and say, I know that feeling because that's the whole point of saying, I don't exactly know that feeling, but I'm totally there with you anyway. It's wanting to actively be anti-racist. It's wanting to actively support one another and say, what's something that I could do to help you personally? Because every individual is going to have their unique requests as well. Because let's say some people want to be more vocal and they'll want their friend to just stand up. And let's say there's a racist remark being thrown. They'll want their friend to say, hey, don't you dare say that and just get really confrontational. Mm -hmm. And then some other people might not like it that way. They might like it where you do stand up for them, but more in a subdued way and say, just pull them away from the situation as to stand as standing up and confronting, because that can be really terrifying for some people, let's say for the fear of getting physically hurt. So being able to tailor your support to the person in need, but in general, being an ally means educating yourself as much as you can, looking online at all these anti-Asian violence resources on how you can, or not even just with Asians, but with any person of color or discriminated group it's looking up and educating yourself as much as you can because for people who are oppressed them having to do all the work and educate and speak out about their trauma it's incredibly tiring and painful and so when people are able to educate themselves as much as they can online or through other people it's really valuable before they enter a conversation because while there will be a lot of people of color who are definitely open to having that conversation Many others say, this was my whole life. It's tiring. I just want to talk about something else or at least have you come in with more information and education to talk about it so that I don't have to do all that tough groundwork. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, it's it's not really your right to 
a person of color's experiences, you know, like you don't have that right to interrogate them about their lived traumas. And so I think people also need to like respect that, that and boundary. Yeah. That boundary and respect their space in those situations where they are like, actually, no, I'm not going to educate you on this. Yeah. Do your own research. Yeah. And I think another important thing is also the issue around performative allyship. So basically for example, posting on Instagram about mm. like, oh, Black Lives Matter, but not actually doing the work yourself. Ah, uh, yeah. So you see a lot of that, especially now with social media being so prominent. And I'm going to preface this with like, I think social media is actually so good for the people who use it because there are actually a lot of really great accounts and really great activists on social media where you can learn a lot. Like I personally have learned so much from activists on Instagram, for example. That's amazing. Yeah. But at the same time, you know, if you're thinking of posting something on your feed or on stories in support of like Asians or black people or you know, whatever social movement, you really need to think about why you are posting it, Mm -hmm. what work you're actually doing for this cause. And like, is it more for you? Like social clout? Yeah. Or are you actually genuinely wanting to help? I think it's so great that you brought this up because I've been feeling this way a lot as well. Mm. I personally don't have Instagram, but I obviously, I used to have it and I know what it can be like. Like you said, sometimes people will post black squares on your Instagram, et cetera. But questioning, is this genuine or is this out of a place of one, not wanting to look racist and two, just looks for social clout essentially. Mm. And unfortunately, I feel like the Stop Asian Hate movement really highlighted that for New Zealanders at least because my American friends, they were all for Black Lives Matter and Stop Asian Hate. But then in New Zealand, for some reason, it was mainly just Black Lives Matter. and. Yep. People love posting like black squares and just other information resources for black people or talking about it. But for some reason, nothing about Mm -hmm. stop Asian hate. And that actually makes me sick to my stomach. It makes me question, were these people genuine at all? The selective advocacy is just straight up racist. It's people saying, I want to support black people more. It's really terrifying to me when I come back here, seeing people advocate so strongly for George Floyd and then say nothing about stop Asian hate, even knowing I organized their march in New Zealand. And so... And knowing 100% they have Asian friends or colleagues, et cetera, everywhere in their office. And it's just really saddening to me. So I feel like if people could actually question, like you said, question, why exactly am I posting this? Am I doing this for myself or am I actually doing it for social change and for advocacy? I've actually had a friend, she said she gets anxious about posting on social media about anything. But she said she's had a ton of conversations with her white friends about this, just in her, in her circles. And I said, that's really meaningful. Mm-hmm. I really thank you for telling me that. And so realizing that, like you said, social media is a powerful platform, but you'd rather be genuine about how you use it yeah, than use it without meaning because it hurts people like us when we see you advocate for Black Lives Matter and not stop Asian hate. Yeah, and like if we sort of look into why – you know, the anti-Asian racism and hate crimes have gotten so much less attention than Black Lives Matter. One thing that I think of is going back to the model minority point. Yes. Because people perceive Asians, East Asians, when we, when we say that, um, we, they perceive us to be closer to whiteness. And so it's again that whole oppression Olympics thing, like we're less oppressed. 
than black people, for example. Exactly. That is so harmful when people think that way. Like mm-hmm. you said, I think that's also another cause of potentially less coverage or less advocacy on the internet. It's people saying black people have it worse. That's that. Like, and anytime you try to advocate, we're going to say, what about brown lives? What about yeah. black lives? And so I think if everyone could look at that and say, oh my gosh, I realize that is happening. Why are we like that? Let's actually listen to Asian people when they're talking about the experiences and realize that their oppression and suffering is different from other minority groups. But that, that doesn't make it any less severe because we all have it severe. It just really depends. Yeah. And as a human being, you're capable of caring about more than one thing at a time. So just because yeah. you support Asian lives doesn't mean that you don't support black lives. Exactly. So, yeah. Well, thank you so much, Steph, for joining me on this episode and helping to unpack some of these really important issues and points. And I really, really appreciate all of the work that you do in this space. Thank you so much. Yeah, and I appreciate how tiring it can be as well. (laughs) We've now been recording for like two hours. Wow, this is impressive. Yeah, honestly. Um, But no, thank you so much again. Thank you so much. Yeah, your work has been really incredible as well. Thank you. Thank you for listening and I hope that was engaging and thought-provoking in some way. The conversation doesn't end here and I am always open to thoughtful discussions. So if you have any feedback or thoughts that you would like to share, then don't hesitate to send me a message. I look forward to hearing from you.